we must look to the end of every matter to see how it will turn out. The gods show many people a hint of happiness and prosperity, only to destroy them utterly later. Solon's response to King Croesus of Lydia in Herodotus's Histories. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 12, Persia, Rise of an Empire. At this stage, we have introduced the two main players of the Classical period, Athens and Sparta, and their political developments up to the Classical period. As we move along, we will hear more about the other city-states of Greece, but their history, and what we are told of them, is mostly tied up with Athens and Sparta's history, which most ancient authors focused on. For the most part, the city-states in Greece were existing as free and independent entities, except for the Messenians and the others that the Spartans had reduced to the status of helots. Though there was a group of Greek polices outside of the Greek mainland, that although running their own local governments as they wished, they were subordinate to a king and they were part of his empire. These Greek city-states were spread out along the Anatolian coast, also known as Ionia, across the Aegean east of Greece. We saw some episodes ago that these cities began as colonies, when their mother cities had sent out colonists coming out of the Dark Ages. When originally settled, they governed themselves independently, but now in 500 BC, the Ionians were living under the rule of the Persian Empire, who would play a huge role in Greek history. We'll be spending the next couple of episodes looking at the Persians and how they developed as an empire, though the Persians were only a relatively new master for the Ionians. They had conspired with the Persians to overthrow their old master, the Lydian Empire, with the hope that they would gain their freedom, but in effect traded one overlord for another. First, to get some background, we'll begin with the story of the Lydian Empire, before then moving to another group known as the Medes. The Persians were a relatively small group of people who came to settle within the Zagros Mountains in modern-day Iran. They would end up struggling with the Medes, who were another Iranian group that controlled the lands around the Zagros. This challenge to the Medes' rule would see the beginnings of what would become an empire. Created in the lifetime of one man, the empire would spread west to the Aegean and east to the Indus Valley. But it wouldn't stop there. The succeeding kings would add yet more territory to this empire, the largest the world had seen to this point. As the empire spread west, it would come to influence events not just for the Ionians, but for the rest of the Greek world too. Most of what we know about the Lydian Empire comes from what we are told by Herodotus in his histories, though we need to be careful not to take everything he says as being factual. There are a lot of traditional tales wrapped around historical events, which we will take a look at. Lydia and its last king, Croesus, are important to us for a couple of reasons. First, looking at both will give some context to the rise of the Persians. Secondly, they are important to the Greek view of history heading into the Greek and Persian wars. Herodotus devotes a large part of Book 1 to Croesus and Lydia as he sees this period as the first verifiable account of the tensions between East and West. He does tell us about past injustices, but these refer to accounts from mythical times, from a Persian perspective with all the fanciful elements removed. If anything, this could show us that the tensions have existed before anyone can remember, but with vague accounts to point to. Therefore, Croesus becomes Herodotus' first historical figure that can be pointed to when looking at tensions heading towards the war with Persia. The Kingdom of Lydia encompassed a lot of what is now modern-day Western Turkey, with it first emerging out of the collapse of the Hittite Empire around 1200 BC, when many of the great Bronze Age civilizations were disappearing from history, which we touched on some episodes ago. 
We hear of three dynasties having ruled Lydia, though we'll only be looking at the last dynasty, which began sometime around the 680s BC. The ruling family probably first controlled the city of Sardis, which would become the centre of Lydian power. The main wealth of the Lydians seems to have been gold or electrum, and according to Herodotus, much was collected from the river Pactolus. Lydia is also where some of the first coins were minted, and Croesus is supposed to have ruled when the gold and silver were extracted from electrum, therefore bringing into existence pure gold and pure silver coins. The important figure in the Lydian Empire for the Greeks was King Croesus, who during his reign brought the Greeks of Ionia under his rule. The Greeks paid tribute to Croesus and were no longer free, which to the Greeks was a very important concept. Croesus was the fifth generation of his family line, and his family seems to have usurped the throne from another ruling family, beginning the third and final dynasty. Herodotus conveys a tale about Gyges, one of Croesus's ancestors, who was the most trusted bodyguard to the king Candules. Candules would talk about the beauty of his wife to Gyges, and then one day, not believing Gyges understood her beauty, he arranged to have Gyges hide in the bedroom while his wife undressed before bed. Gyges had resisted the idea, but after much insisting from the king, he felt he could no longer refuse. As Gyges slipped out of the bedroom, the queen had noticed, but did not say anything to her husband, but plotted to get revenge. The next day, the queen requested to see Gyges, and informed him she knew what had happened the night before. She gave Gyges two options, one, to kill the king, marry her and take the throne, or die himself for the outrage of seeing her naked. After some pleading with the queen, Gyges accepts that he will kill Candules. The queen has Gyges hide in the royal bedroom again and gives him a knife. Once the king fell asleep, Gyges struck and killed Candules, taking the throne and marrying the queen. Herodotus also adds to this tale that Gyges had his rule confirmed by an oracle to satisfy the subjects of the empire, but accompanying the prophecy was also a warning. Revenge for the deed Gyges had done would also be had in the fifth generation of his line. How accurate the details of this tale are, we don't know as we don't have much to collaborate against. Though it appears there was a king in Lydia named Gyges around the time this is supposed to have taken place, due to some inscriptions found on a tablet made by King Ashurbanipal of the Assyrian Empire located further east. The tale that Herodotus gives us could have been a story that was told and continued to be told for generations to legitimise Croesus's family coming to the throne and being forced into the position to hide over the fact that treachery may have taken place. Nearly all legendary stories relating to the origin of people and places have a good dose of propaganda thrown in to try and convey the message the storyteller wants to put across. During the generations after Croesus's family coming to the throne, many wars were fought with the neighbouring tribes and lands, which saw the Lydians expand their territory. Under Croesus's rule, the Lydians attacked and conquered the city-states in Aeolia and Ionia one by one, therefore ruling over the Greeks throughout Ionia, where their ancestors had founded new colonies centuries earlier. It seems that the Ionian cities were conquered fairly quickly, but little or no effort was put into conquering the islands off the coast. This may be due to the Lydians being a formidable force on land, being famous for their cavalry, but being a weaker naval power. In Herodotus's account, Croesus, as we have seen from the story of his family coming to power, was doomed to fall. Another story is also inserted into the tale of Croesus, but this time one of misfortune to his family line, seemingly to remind us of the inevitable fall. Croesus had two sons, though one of them was disabled and not seen fit to rule. The other was named Attis, 
and described as a fine young man, more so than one could wish for. One night Croesus awoke from a dream where Attis was killed by an iron weapon, and now he thought his son's life was in danger. Croesus took measures to protect his son and family line. He sought to find Attis a wife. He made sure Attis no longer marched with the army he commanded, and had all the weapons that hung in the palace rooms removed. As plans for Attis's wedding were in motion, a stranger enters Croesus's life, who was guilty of manslaughter from his homeland. Croesus cleansed the man of his blood guilt, as per the stranger's request, and tells his tale to Croesus. The stranger reveals his name as Adrastus, and Croesus realises he is from a family friendly to his own and takes Adrastus in. Now that we have all the actors in place, word arrived from part of Croesus's empire of a monstrous boar who was ravaging farmers' crops. The people of the area requested that Croesus send the troops commanded by his son to help rid their lands of the beast. Croesus forbade that his son would be sent off with the troops, citing his recent marriage as an excuse to keep him home. Ades learned of Croesus' refusal to send him and tried to persuade his father in letting him go, as his honour and authority in Lydian society would be damaged. Croesus then informs his son about his dream, to where Ates convinces his father that no danger exists as a boar cannot wield an iron spear. Croesus, for good measure, requests Adrastus to travel with his son to protect him from any harm, and the hunting party is allowed to set out. Ates and his men tracked the boar down and had it encircled. All the men threw their spears trying to hit the boar, and after all was done, it was noticed that Ates lay dead with Adrastus's iron spear protruding from his body. So the prophecy sent to Croesus in a dream was fulfilled by the very man he had welcomed into his court and sent out to protect his son. The very crime he had cleansed Adrastus of was now committed on his own son. Croesus's actions in attempting to prevent the prophecy from taking place would lead directly to fulfilling it, and now would spell the doom of his family line. It is also interesting that this story takes place right after a supposed meeting between Solon and Croesus. It seems unlikely that this meeting really took place due to when both men are supposed to have lived. The quote at the start of the episode was taken from the part of the discourse between the two. Croesus was seeking an answer from Solon on who was the happiest and most fortunate of men, assuming he himself would be named due to his vast wealth and power. Solon's answers disappoint and frustrate him as he fails to name him but informs him that happiness cannot be judged until a man has died therefore taking into account his entire life, as misfortune can strike at any time. Once the funeral of Atis was complete, Adrastus killed himself, as he was so overcome with guilt and lay dead on Atis's tomb. Croesus had forgiven Adrastus's actions, referring to the family curse he had been warned of, implying it was inevitable. Croesus mourned the death of his son for another two years before a threat in the east developed. This threat was the new empire, that seemed to have come out of nowhere, and they were the Persians, under the rule of Cyrus, who would soon be given the title of the Great. Though before we get to the Persians and Croesus' date with destiny, let's have a look at the Lydians' previous neighbours, the Medes, who the Persians would end up defeating, starting their journey of empire and putting them into contact with the Lydians. The Medes are a people who originate in the Zagros Mountains, in what is now Iran. For a long time we have had to take Herodotus' basic outline of the Medes and basically roll with it as nothing about them was written anywhere else. Though in recent times modern historians using his accounts as well as archaeological finds have also put forward theories. 
Herodotus's account has the Medes taking power once the Assyrian Empire had fallen and formed their own great empire out of the power vacuum caused by their demise. The Assyrians ruled a great part of the Near East for over 100 years, from around 745 to 612 BC. Though, towards the end of their domination, different peoples under their rule were able to rise up and cause great strife throughout the empire. In the end, a confederation of cities and powers formed and were able to bring the Assyrian Empire crashing down. This is where we get the nice neat transition from the Assyrian Empire to the Median Empire from Herodotus. Though with more recent study of the period, we are starting to get perhaps a different and not so neat story that has been slowly starting to shift away from the traditional view. A good dose of interpretation is still needed though, as no written tradition by the Medes themselves has been uncovered. The Medes lived in fortified settlements ruled over by chieftains in the times of the Assyrian Empire. The Medes were not fully politically controlled by Assyria, and the chieftains could rule their settlements as they pleased, though a tribute was paid to the Assyrians. The fortified settlements the Medes occupied tended to be dotted along the Khorasan Highway, an important trade route between Mesopotamia and Iran. The Medes were not the only peoples within the Zagros Mountains, but once Assyria had defeated one of the Medes' powerful neighbours, they were able to spread their influence throughout the region. The Assyrian Empire encountered some troubles and succession problems after the death of the last Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. During this time, a coalition of Median tribes joined forces with the Babylonians and other peoples who had also been under the Assyrian rule. The major players in the coalition, though, seem to have been the Medes and Babylonians. Once the coalition had waged a series of wars on the declining Assyrians and defeated them, the Babylonians emerged into what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The winners out of the collapse of the Assyrian Empire were the Neo-Babylonians, who incurred into the former allies' territory in the Zagros Mountains. The Neo-Babylonians also waged wars against Egypt and the Levantine coast. This is the period where Jerusalem was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and the Israelites were deported to Babylon, as told in the Old Testament. Now we'll look at the stories that Herodotus presents us about Cyrus's birth and coming to power, eventually founding the Persian Empire. His story takes place on the backdrop of Herodotus' Median Empire. The Medes, as we have already talked about, appear to have been the more influential group in the Zagros Mountains, but another group known as the Persians also called the Zagros Home. It is very interesting to note that the story that Herodotus gives about Cyrus is one of three that he knows about but he only gives us the one that he says is the most believable, so it would be very interesting to know what the other two were. And again, these stories, as far as the details are concerned, are not historical fact, but there is most likely motivation why the stories have come down the way they have about these historical events and figures. Now we get to the legend of Cyrus's birth, which starts with the last ruler of the Medes, Astyages. It's also important to note that in Herodotus' account of the rulers of the Medes, historians have not been able to reconcile all the figures and their deeds, with some problems with the chronology given. Though I'm not going to go into each of the rulers, we just need to start with Astyages, who has a direct connection to Cyrus. Astyages had a daughter named Mundane. One night, he dreamt that Mundane urinated in a way that filled up all of Asia. He consulted the Magi, who were a priestly class, who then interpreted the dream that once she had a child, the child would grow up and usurp the throne. Once Mardane was old enough to marry, Astyages picked a Persian husband considered inferior in class to the Medes, but still from a respectable family. Not long after the wedding, Astyages had another dream, 
This time, vines grew from his daughter's private parts and encompassed all of Asia. Again, the Magi were consulted on the meaning of the dream, to where the same conclusion was arrived at. This time, Astyages wasn't going to take any risks, and he had his daughter under a watchful eye so that the baby could be taken away once born. Once Cyrus was born, Astyages sent for his most trusted kinsman, Hippargus, and explained the seriousness of what he wanted him to carry out. Hippargus was to take the baby, kill it, and have it buried. Hippargus obeyed, but on his way home with the baby, he was outraged with what Astyages expected him to do, and would not kill the baby himself. Hippargus sent for one of the king's servants instead, and instructed a herdsman named Mitridates to carry out the grisly task. He was instructed that the king had ordered that he was to expose the baby in the wild, and once the baby was dead, he was to bring the body for Hippargus to see. Once Mitridates arrived home with the baby, like in most traditional tales, somewhat of a coincidence, an opportunity presented itself, otherwise known as fate. Mitridates' wife had just given birth that same day, but to a stillborn. Mitridates told his wife of what he was supposed to carry out or risk brutal death. His wife pleaded with him not to go through with the plan and uncovered their dead child, suggesting that they allow their baby to have a royal funeral while they raise the prince. Mitridates agreed to his wife's suggestion and swapped the clothes for the babies. He then took the stillborn into the wild and left it for two days before returning to Hippargus and showing him the exposed baby. Hippargus was now happy with the evidence presented to him and had the baby buried while the herdsman and his wife were left to raise Cyrus as their own. Once Cyrus was ten years old, he and some other boys were playing a children's game called Kings. Cyrus was chosen to be king and assigned the other roles to the rest of the boys to play out under his rule. One boy of noble medium birth was beaten with a whip by Cyrus for not doing as he was commanded, and afterwards he ran home to complain about this injustice. The boy's father took the complaint to Astyages, as Cyrus was known to be the son of Astyages' herdsman. Astyages then sent for the herdsman, Mitridates, and his son Cyrus, to get an explanation of why he, the son of a mere herdsman, treated a noble family's son in such a manner. Cyrus's response was that he felt he had done nothing wrong, as he was chosen to be king by the others. Immediately this revealed his true identity to Astyages, as it was not the answer of a slave. Now recognising Cyrus's features to be like his own, Astyages questioned the herdsman to get the full story. Mitridates resisted telling the truth to start with, but with the threat of torture, he told Astyages everything. Astyages' mind now turned to Hippargus, the man responsible for getting rid of Cyrus as a baby. Astyages now had Hippargus summon. Once he arrived, he was questioned, and seeing the herdsman there, he revealed the truth, though unaware that Cyrus was still alive. Astyages, suppressing his anger, recounts the herdsman's story, and ends the account in a cheerful mood that Cyrus is alive, as he appears to have greatly regretted his decision to have the baby killed in the first place. He then invites Hippargus and his son to join him for dinner and a sacrifice to the gods to celebrate his good fortune. As soon as Hippargus' son arrived at the palace, Astyages had him butchered, cooked up and prepared to be served to Hippargus at the table. After everyone had finished dinner, Astyages asked Hippargus if he had enjoyed dinner, to where he gave the answer he had. Astyages then had Hippargus reveal the hands, head and feet of his son from under a lid, explaining what he had just eaten. Hippargus kept control of his anger and appeared to accept the punishment he had received for disobeying the king's orders then left with what remained of his son. 
After having consulted the Magi, Astyages was now satisfied that Cyrus was of no danger to his throne anymore, as the game of kings had fulfilled the prophecy in his dreams. Astyages then arranged for Cyrus to travel to Persia and be reunited with his birth parents. During the journey, Cyrus learnt the truth of what had happened to him at birth from the guides travelling with him, sowing the seeds that the prophecy had not yet been fulfilled. As the years passed, Cyrus had grown into one of the bravest and most influential men in media. Hipparchus, who had swallowed his sorrow and anger at Astyages' palace all those years ago, now started to attempt to win Cyrus' support for his revenge. Hipparchus had reminded Cyrus of the fate that he would have suffered for Astyages' plan had been fulfilled. He kept in contact with Cyrus and had encouraged him to have the Persians revolt from Median rule. Cyrus, looking for a way to persuade the Persians, sent letters off to the different tribes, informing them that he had been appointed the leader of the Persian army. He had the more powerful tribes present themselves to him, and once they had arrived, he had the men engaged in hard manual labour for the rest of the day. The next day, Cyrus prepared a large banquet for all the men, and told them to enjoy themselves. At the end of the day, he asked which day the men had preferred, with all agreeing the second was much better. Cyrus then convinced the tribes that if they revolted, feasting and leisure would be the norm if they would shake the Median yoke. Otherwise, they were destined to experience the days of hard labour under Median rule as they had done on the first day. There had always been a resentment of Median domination over them, but now they had found a leader and enthusiasm for liberty. Astyages attempted to reach out to Cyrus with dissension in the air. But all his advances were rebuffed. Cyrus and Astyages were headed for a showdown. Astyages had his men mobilised to meet Cyrus's army and had Harpagus placed in command of the Median army. Harpagus was now able to take his revenge on Astyages and had convinced the majority of the Median army to defect or fight badly. Astyages learnt of the collapse, had his magi impaled for getting the prophecy so wrong and let out the remaining Medians who were loyal to him to engage Cyrus. The Median loyalists were killed to a man, Astyages was taken prisoner, and lived out the rest of his days at Cyrus's court. With that, a new empire was emerging, that of the Persians, and under the rule of Cyrus, who would become to be known as Cyrus the Great. This is basically how Herodotus explains the rise of Cyrus and the Persian Empire. The accounts given by Herodotus are what most Greeks would have been used to hearing, and would have been what was the generalised accepted view of the Persian rise. Nowadays though, with the discovery of archaeological artefacts and the decipherment of clay tablets, parts of what had been accepted from Herodotus' account have been worked into new theories. Though there are also bits of evidence that do support his account, in parts such as the Babylonian Chronicles that agree with the Styades army defecting on the field of battle to Cyrus's army. Though the motivation may not have come from the general leading the army being tricked into eating his own son years earlier. When it comes to Cyrus's background, we also have accounts from a Greek physician in Persian service named Theseus, who describes Cyrus coming from a poor background and taking the kingship. The Hebrew Bible also talks about Cyrus and portrays him as being sent by God to free the Jews from Babylonian captivity. Also, an artefact known as the Cyrus Cylinder was discovered in the Babylonian ruins in the late 1800s of our time, which describes Cyrus's victory over the Babylonians. But what is important is how he describes himself. He gives his royal title, which amongst them is the King of Ashan, and outlines his genealogy, showing that he is the son 
of past kings of Ashan. This seal shows a different background to what Herodotus portrays, and one of royal heritage, and also suggesting Persia was a separate region to Media, and that the Persians were not a secondary class in the Median Empire. Most modern historians who study Persia think Persia was its own small kingdom that existed in southwest Iran, just south of Media. They seem to have migrated to the region in the first millennium BC and have been centred on a city known as Ashan, as we have seen features in the ruling titles that Cyrus gives. The two kingdoms of Media and Persia then seem to have fought each other as independent regions, most likely over territory, trade or control over an important city, such as Susa. Once the Medes were defeated, Cyrus incorporated them into his empire with ease, mainly due to programs of respecting customs and traditions. With the Persians now controlling a much larger empire, they now had new neighbours, and one of those new neighbours was Croesus and his Lydian empire, where we will now pick up where we left Croesus and his empire earlier. It would seem that the rapid advance of the Persian empire and their arrival on the Lydian border would have made Croesus very nervous. This is also the period we see Croesus making friendly advances towards the Greek mainland, which we briefly saw in the episodes on the Spartans. He had made a friendship with Sparta after being assured that they were the most powerful of the Greek city-states. Once again, we need to turn to Herodotus' account for some more details and flavour to the story. We are told that Croesus, now seeing the new empire looming, sought advice and turned to the most respected oracle in Greece, the oracle at Delphi. Croesus wanted to know if he should make the first move, so he had the messengers ask the oracle, should he attack the Persians? The response came back that if he attacked the Persians, a mighty empire would fall. The messengers made their way back to Sardis and informed Croesus of the answer. Croesus was delighted and prepared his army and crossed the river Halys. His army started ravaging the crops and capturing cities. Meanwhile, Cyrus had assembled his army and was on his way to meet Croesus. The Persian and Median armies finally met in Cappadocia and were arrayed for battle. Both sides engaged in battle that took a heavy toll on both sides. By nightfall, there was no clear victor. Both the Persians and the Lydians returned to their camps. Croesus blamed the stalemate on the fact that his army was much smaller than he would have liked. He decided to return to Sardis with his army and send for reinforcements from Egypt, Babylon and Sparta through treaties and agreements that he had set up. The battle that Herodotus calls the Battle of Petria took place near the end of the campaigning season, so Croesus' plan was to gather reinforcements and continue the fighting against the Persians once spring came. Unfortunately for Croesus, Cyrus decided to take a risk and push on after the Lydian army and attempt to catch them unaware. Croesus, once reaching Sardis, had disbanded a large part of his army to return to their villages for the winter. This is exactly what Cyrus had been counting on Croesus doing and why he took the risk to advance into enemy territory, in deteriorating weather and onto an imposing city such as Sardis. The Persian march was so quick that no news had followed their advance, and took the Lydians completely by surprise. Croesus led out the remaining Lydians to meet the Persian army, where he was still supported by some of the most formidable cavalry. To counter this, the Persians had fielded camels in their ranks. The smell was meant to put off the horses, and during the battle, it's written that most of the Lydian cavalry turned and ran from the field, though the riders dismounted and fought on foot. In the end, after putting up an extremely tough fight, the Lydians retired into Sardis and were besieged by the Persians. The siege had lasted 14 days when a reward was offered by Cyrus for the first man to get into the city. 
This was enough to encourage the army to try once again to take the city by force, but the attempt failed. A lone Persian soldier sought to find a way in unnoticed after seeing a Lydian soldier drop his helmet down from a slope from a section of the city that was virtually undefended. The soldier climbed his way down, collected his helmet, and climbed back up again. The Persian soldier, followed by others, then made his way up the slope, taking the same path as the Lydian soldier. The Persians had now breached the walls and went on to sack Sardis. The oracle at Delphi had once again been vindicated, predicting the outcome of the campaign. A mighty empire had fallen. Croesus had just failed to consider if it was his that was being referred to. Croesus's fate is not 100% known, as the Babylonian Chronicle says that he was killed, but Herodotus informs us that he became part of Cyrus's court, though not before a couple of events intervened. First, during the taking of Sardis, Croesus was about to be cut down by a Persian soldier, but a boy who had never spoken yelled out to the soldier, Do not kill Croesus. With his identity revealed, he was taken prisoner instead. The other event was from divine intervention from Apollo, when after taking the city, Cyrus had Croesus tied up on a pyre, which was then lit on fire. But then regretting his decision, called upon the gods to intervene, who sent a sudden rain shower to douse the flames. These stories aside, both the outcomes of Croesus' fate are just as likely as each other. It is easy to imagine how Croesus could have been cut down in the confusion of battle during the storming of the city. On the other hand though, Cyrus becomes well known for his favourable treatment of kings, that he is defeated in battle. The Persian Empire had now arrived at the Aegean Sea, but now Cyrus needed to consolidate his victory over Lydia, and had governors put in place, also known as satraps. Cyrus then somewhat disappears from the written sources that we have. He is assumed to have taken an army and started campaigning in the east of his empire, expanding it further in that direction. Now with Cyrus out of the picture, Sardis with help from the Ionian cities launched a revolt against Persian rule. The seriousness of the revolt was enough for Cyrus to return with his army. The revolt was quickly put down and the leaders treated very harshly. We have seen Cyrus had treated his enemies with respect when defeated, but he also expected respect and loyalty from them once they had submitted. To act against this would bring out the other side of Cyrus, with leaders and cities experiencing his wrath. With Sardis brought back into the fold, Cyrus had Hipparchus then take an army and focus on submitting the Ionian Greeks. The Ionian cities were not united in their cause, and even though they had sent to Greece requesting help, the cities fell one by one. Herodotus tells us of one of the first encounters between Cyrus and the mainland Greeks, where the Spartans had decided on not sending an army, but sent out heralds with a message. In the meeting, the heralds warned Cyrus to leave the Ionians alone or they would have to deal with them. Cyrus is to have responded that he was not afraid of men who met in marketplaces and argued with each other all day long. Probably an unfair accusation to level at the Spartans out of all the Greeks. He also added that if they did not stay out of his business, then they would soon enough submit to his rule as well. Cyrus's attention now shifted to the jewel of Mesopotamia, Babylon. Babylon was now ruled by King Nabonidus. There is a suggestion that he was not a very popular ruler with part of his population due to his meddling in the traditional worship of the gods. Due to this division in Babylonian society, part of the population was open to allying themselves with Cyrus to see the overthrow of Nabonidus. Babylon was still a formidable power and a few years of campaigning was required to see it brought under Persian control. 
In the end, Cyrus met Nabonidus in a battle near the city of Opus. Nabonidus' army was defeated, and he retreated back to Babylon, to where Cyrus had another general take an army to Babylon. Along the way, many villages under Babylonian control fell to the Persians, further reducing Babylonian influence in the area. Nabonidus was captured in the taking of Babylon, and in typical Cyrus style, he spared Nabonidus. To Babylon, Cyrus presented himself as a saviour of the city, sent by the god Marduk, who was the chief Babylonian god, and reinstated him to his rightful place of worship. The fall of Babylon took place in 539 BC, but for the next nine years there is very little evidence to suggest what Cyrus was up to. Generally it has been assumed that he had been campaigning in the east and the north fringes of the empire, stabilising his borders, while also planning for a campaign against Egypt the only great power remaining that bordered his empire. We then hear of the death of Cyrus the Great in Herodotus' account when campaigning against a tribe that was part of the Scythian people in what is now modern-day Kazakhstan. His tale is told to a Greek audience as a cautionary lesson in hubris, the Greek notion of excessive self-importance and the defiance of the gods. Cyrus the Great reigned for 29 years and in that time he was able to create a new empire stretching from the Anatolian coast in the west all the way through to the Indus Valley in the east. This new empire was much larger than what had come before, though more would be added in time to come. The image of Cyrus the Great that we get today has been shaped by a number of cultures that had direct dealings with him. He has come across as an admired conqueror and benevolent ruler, liberating peoples from repressive systems to practice their own religion freely. Both the Babylonian Chronicles and the Old Testament present a figure sent by their god to liberate their people. Cyrus, for the most part, allowed populations in his empire to practice their religions freely, not from an altruistic point of view, but more a practical one, as people, when they are left to their own personal lives, with the least disruption, are less likely to revolt. The Greek sources from Xenophon and Herodotus give us romanticised accounts of what would amount to a philosopher king and traditional tales explaining his preordained greatness for an audience of Greek readers or listeners. Also, inscriptions left by the Persians painted images of Cyrus and the Persian Empire that Cyrus and future rulers wanted to portray. And these can be seen in the Cyrus Cylinder, which was a seal that could be pressed and rolled into a clay tablet, transferring the information from the cylinder, much like a stamp today. In this seal, Cyrus presents himself as a saviour to the Babylonians during his conquest of the city, attempting to convince the conquered city that they had actually been liberated. His propaganda must have worked to some degree, since this is how the Babylonian Chronicle also presents him. After Cyrus's death, his body was transported back into the empire's boundaries, and was entombed at the city of Persepolis. So comes to a close the life of Cyrus the Great in 530 BC. But the empire he began would continue for another 200 years. In the next episode, we'll continue the Persian story with Cyrus's successor, Cambyses, and then on to Darius, who would be the ruler when the great showdown between the Greek world and the Persian Empire would take root. Thank you for your continued support. To receive updates, to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 13, Persia. King of Kings.